Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 19? We're going to read 17 through 27. John 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic it's called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, so also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So it has been a long night. In the text today, there have been a number of different things before we get to it that Christ has already gone through and experienced. He has had deep emotions on this night in the upper room. Um, His soul was troubled. He even said it out loud to them that his soul was troubled because of what was going to happen. He has been the object on this night of intense anger and blasphemy. He has gone through this night the betrayal of one of his own. He has been lied about repeatedly through false trials. He has been blindfolded. He has been punched in the face. And he's been hit with a staff. They have weaved together a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and pushed the thorns deeply into his head. He was ordered by Pilate to be whipped and beaten, flogged, scourged. And so he has had his flesh ripped out over his back and probably on his hamstrings and his calves. He has been a bloody mess. They have put a robe on him. It has begun to clot and they have ripped the robe off him. And and the darkness of this night and what they are going to do to Jesus is not over yet. They will continue to do more things to him. There's a lot already that he has gone through. But there is more that he will bear and that he will do. And so as we come to this next part of John chapter 19, it finds us seeing Jesus moving on from the trials and the beatings. The next step is going to be difficult. He will carry the cross. He will be publicly crucified as a criminal. And I'll be honest, this section is a bit hard today because it reminds me of the darkness that can be in my heart and that was in my heart one day before Jesus changed my life. And it's a reminder to you as well as to what our response to God is. Earlier in the night, we talked about in John chapter 15, 
is that Jesus said, listen, the world is going to hate you, but you need to keep in mind that it's hated me first. And so what they do to me, they're going to do to you. And, and, and at the end of that section, Jesus says, ultimately he says, they hated me without reason. They, they didn't have a reason at all, particularly the Jews. This is their long-awaited Messiah. They had no reason to hate him. And yet in the end, this is what they did exactly, is that they hated him. And so the depth of humanity's response to God who came to draw near to us and redeem us is seen here and it reveals the darkness of the human heart. It also reveals, and I hope you say amen, the glorious hope that we have in the cross. So yes, it reveals how desperately we needed redemption and yet it does reveal that redemption was offered to us. So the Son of God, the sinless one, is convicted as a criminal, as one worthy of capital punishment, though he had never sinned. And yet each aspect of this night, as we have been talking about, was not in, listen, this is so important, this was not in the hands of men. This day, this night, is under the sovereign hand of his Father. This was why Jesus came. And though evil men in the darkness of their heart are doing this to Jesus... God the Father is directing this because there is no hope without this. Without His blood being shed, without, his, without Him bearing our sin in His body, there is no hope. And so the Father's definite plan is being fulfilled here for Jesus came to die and this is exactly what is happening and taking place. And so on this day, He will bear our sin, He will crush its power, and He will satisfy the wrath of His Father and He will... Again, through his broken body and his spilled blood, now open the door for us to come into relationship with Christ. Let's look at verse 17, and I want to talk about just five things today. And I want to talk about the first thing is, is, and I want us to see him bearing his own cross. So let's read 17 again. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I want to ask you now to turn back to Genesis chapter 22 just for a second here because I want to, I want to highlight something there, but then we'll come back to John 19. As you know, the potential sacrifice of Isaac is a prophetic picture of what is going to happen and take place with Christ. And I wanted to just read a little bit um, from that, Genesis chapter 22. And then I want, to go, I want us to go back to... Uh, 19, and then we'll, I want to point out something really important for us to see today. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And listen to the trust that Abraham has here. And come back again. We'll come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and notice the prophetic word here. He laid it on Isaac's back. So the wood that Isaac would, would carry, that he would be laid on, 
prophetic picture of Jesus carrying and bearing his own cross. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so both of them went together. Look at verse 7. So Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac his son and laid on him the altar on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. This is, this is amazing. Listen to this. He called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Go back to chapter 19 now. I want to point out something really important that we need to see this morning. So all those years ago, I can't fathom this. I have sons. can't fathom God coming and, and, and asking this. Take your son and lay your son on the altar and obey me and sacrifice your son. Abraham does this. He takes the action. He goes. We know from the text, we just read it there, is that God provided a what instead of Isaac? A substitute. On that day, a substitute was given So that Isaac did not shed his blood and he wasn't sacrificed. And so in John chapter 19, I want to remind you and I, though that that Genesis 22 is a prophetic picture, there will be no substitute for Jesus on this day in John 19. He is the substitute. He is the one who will go and he will bear our sin. And so he goes carrying the cross, doing this in our place so that you and I have the hope of salvation. Now, whether Jesus carried the whole thing or did he just carry the, the cross beam, Rome did it both ways. The point is never this, and don't argue about things that really aren't that important. The point is not, did he carry all of the wood or did he carry part of the wood? That's not the point. The point is, is that he carried our sin. That's the point. Is that as he went to the cross, he was carrying our sin and so Jesus now is sent out and I want to point this out and it's really important go back to the John nineteen seventeen. the first words there of verse 17 are really important to note again we say this all the time every sentence every word every phrase in scripture is important and it says and he went out bearing his own cross let me tell you what it was like 2,000 years ago in the land of crucifixion. It was the most cruel death almost in the history of the world that people could experience. So no one went to a crucifixion willingly. If you were sentenced to crucifixion and you were forced to carry your cross out there, 
those people fought every square inch of the way leading up to the cross. They tried to delay it. They would fall down. They would, they would do all kinds of things. They would try to run away. They would try to get away because they knew that what happened when they got to the place of crucifixion, that it was going to be the most cruel death. Growing up under Roman rule, Jesus had walked by countless crucifixions. They would take place mainly on the highways throughout Israel, and there would be signs above there saying, this is what this person has done. So growing up under Roman rule, Jesus would have seen this. He would have known this. He would have passed by the place that he knew that he would be crucified. And it is really important to see this morning that on this day, though it was the common practice of those being led to their death by crucifixion, they would fight every square inch of it. Note what Jesus does. What does he do there? He went out willingly and he walked carrying his cross all the way to the place. It is exactly a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 that he was led and he, he has... Roman people, Jewish people, leading him to the place where he will die and he willingly walks out of the city. Mark chapter 15, verse 20 and Luke 23, 26 say that they led him away. Again, this is a fulfillment. Here's Jesus continuing to submit himself to the will of the Father, taking one step after another to be crucified. He never ran from this work. Never once did he, nor the shame that would be connected with it. Way back in John chapter 1, John's got, John the Baptist has some disciples he's been pouring his life into as, they've been, as he's been getting things ready for the coming of the Messiah. And twice Jesus comes by him and he points to Jesus and says, Men, men, there's the Lamb. Look, at, look right there. That's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Twice John says this in John 1, John the Baptist does. John never got to see it himself, but he prophetically saw it and he knew who Jesus was and he knew what Jesus would do, that he would be the one who would be led away to take away the sin of the world. It's already well known at this particular point in time as John writes the gospel much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, it was already known that along the way Jesus could no longer carry his cross. He wasn't trying to get out of it, but he had been beaten, he'd been awake all night, he falls to the ground, and so they get a man who has come for the Passover, a man named Simon of Cyrene, and uh, he's forced to carry Christ's cross the rest of the way. I also just want to point out that Jesus, as they take the wood off of him, whatever it's, again, whether it's the whole cross, whether it's just the cross beam, he's now free of it. He does not run away. He doesn't try to get away. He continues to take step after step to go outside of the city gate where he will bear our sin. They go to the place called of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I was 12 years old and my grandparents took me on a Holy Land tour. Um, I would like to really go back now. I was 12 and you know how 12-year-olds are. They don't really fully appreciate everything. But I went to the place that they believe that he was crucified and it not only was it a place where lots of crucifixions took place, but there on the side of the mountain there that's now a kind of a major road, it looks into the rock like a skull. 
And so it was known as the place of the skull. It was also the place where they were crucified. If you were a poor person in that time, it was very near what was called Gehenna, this garbage dump, and they would take the bodies and they would throw the bodies of the poor there as well. And, and just, a, just a place of death, and this is where the Savior, the Son of God, goes. It must have been a bit surreal for Jesus as he walked there that day and also throughout his life when he was in Jerusalem. Here is the one who has been with the Father in eternity past, prior to creation, and now he is here, God in the flesh, carrying a cross to Calvary, to Golgotha that he himself had created. He had created that. He's now walking to the very place that he would give his life. He had walked by this again multiple times in his life, and I wondered at each passing, did he think about, about what he would do eventually by bearing our sin? So Jesus bears his cross. He's led out. He willingly goes. He doesn't fight it. He's not trying to get away. And he walks all the way to the outside part of the city. Let me read to you why this is important when it, the text says here to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Why, did, why was he not killed inside of the city? Well, the scripture has something to say um, about that. So in Exodus chapter 29 and then in Leviticus chapter 4 and chapter 6, the scripture says there that you could not make a sacrifice for sin within the walls of the city. That had to, be take, that had to take place outside of the city. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 writes these words about Christ. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. By the way, we'll deal with this next week. Every aspect of what we are beholding here was a fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture was going to take place and much of it was going to happen and take place on this day. And so what's happened from then, as we now move to point two this morning, is this. It's what 2,000 years ago, people would, if you wore a cross, you got a cross around your neck, you got cross earrings, you would not wear that 2,000 years ago. There was no glorification of the cross. But for the last 2,000 years, what has the church been about? The church has been about the mission of the cross. We sing about it. We preach about it. It guides our life. It becomes the great anthem of the church. The Son of God came and died on the cross. And so we, we don't worship the cross. We worship the one who was on the cross. We worship Him. But the cross becomes a great symbol for us. His shed blood becomes this great symbol for us that we sing about, we preach about, and we embrace it. And so He went bearing His own cross. Look with me now in verse 18 and let's look at the second thing this morning that he was numbered. This was another fulfillment of the scripture. He was numbered among the transgressors or the sinners. Verse 18, and there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. It's interesting as John gets to this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already written their gospels. They've given detail about this. John now writing probably multiple decades later after the initial Gospels were put together, he just very, in simple words, 
just says this, and there they crucified him. Right there on that very spot, John says they nailed him to the cross and they lifted him up to die. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the pain this day would bring. Isaiah 53, 3 and following. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And surely he has borne our griefs and sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah also wrote these words in chapter 52, verse 14. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred, so beaten was Christ, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so here is Jesus outside of the city. He is crucified. He is lifted up from the earth. He is suspended there between two thieves, suspended between heaven and earth. Do you see him there this morning? Can you picture the Son of God, our Savior, our great Lord, hanging there on the cross in our place, calling the lost, calling the broken, to behold the magnificence of the moment that God had come to rescue broken and lost sinners. There's a fulfillment of Scripture that happens here. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So let me talk about this just for a moment. I think it's important for us to be reminded of this. So there on Calvary, in between two men guilty of real crimes against Rome, Jesus makes the ultimate and greatest sacrifice. Those around him are getting exactly what they deserve. They have committed real crimes. Jesus is sinless. He is dying for other people's crimes and other people's sins. Those around him are getting exactly what they deserve according to the law. But Christ is innocent of all sin. It is there, numbered among the transgressors and sinners, where Jesus embraces the Father's will. Therefore, he embraces the guilt of our sin. He embraces the pain and the heartache. He took it upon himself and he suffered the wrath of the Father as he hangs on the cross. I encourage you this morning to look at the man in the middle. Look at the man in the middle who had made the ultimate sacrifice. And as they hang there and as the day wore on, things began to change. We'll talk about it in a moment, but a a sign is put above Jesus' head in three different languages, declaring this is the king of the Jews. So there he is with two other criminals who are getting their just punishment from Rome from what they have done. Matthew records in 27:38 that then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Matthew 27, 44, and the robbers were crucified with him. They also reviled him in the same way. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, if you'll remember, people were walking by. It's a main road leading into Jerusalem. 
And so people are walking by looking at Jesus hanging on the cross. And many of the religious leaders and others, they mock Christ as He hangs on the cross. As the day wears on, in the beginning, the two thieves also joined in what the crowd was doing. And they mocked Jesus as He hangs on the cross. We don't know everything that they said, but we know some of the things. Look at Him. Look at Him. He saved others. Can't He save Himself? They were saying, come down from the cross. And we shout, no, don't come down. Because if He came down, He wouldn't die for us. But He must stay. He must remain. And so the passers-by mock Him. The two robbers mock Him. But something began to change as the day wore on. One of them began to see things differently. This is, by the way, exactly what the cross of Jesus does. It helps us to see things differently. So one is hanging just like Jesus is. He sees the sign over Jesus' head. But something during the day begins to happen and he sees the scene completely, completely different. And I'm convinced of this, and I know this to be true, that when we behold the glory of the cross and what Christ did for us, it brings a transformation to our lives. We see that there's a value there to our life that God is willing to die to rescue us. That there is worth there that even though we offer nothing to Him, He was willing to take our place. So the last kind words that are spoken to Jesus are spoken there by one of the men who were on the cross. It's an amazing transformation. Think on this with me for a moment. Here is one man being crucified, looking at another man being crucified, and sees in that man as one who has the power to get him to heaven on that day. And so he makes a request. Can I come with you today? into your kingdom. What a powerful moment it is. What's happening on the cross? Same thing that's happening in this room today. It's called the revelation of of the Holy Spirit's work. We don't open our eyes to see the glory of God. Who does? The Spirit does. So look at the amazing thing. So people walking by mocking. Two Robbers mocking. One begins to see clearly as the day wears on. That man in the middle is the Son of God, the Savior. And I don't know how long he contemplated or if it was just a spur of the moment thing. I think personally that he thought about it for a bit. I can't tell you how long, but he thought about it and he couldn't hold it in any longer. And so he tells the other one, quit, quit, quit saying things to Jesus. Quit saying stuff. We are getting what we deserve. He's not. And he says to Jesus something that he likely had been thinking about. And he says to Christ, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus says some of the most astounding words. He says, today you will be with me. In paradise. Let me note something that's really important. How did the guy ask Jesus for this? Did he go to a did he go to a Bible class? Did he did he 
go to seminary? Did he stop one of the priests walking by saying, hey, can you tell me a little bit more? No, he knows that the man in the middle is the Son of God. And so he asked one crucified man, <coughs> asking another crucified man, can I come with you into your kingdom? And this is one, this is exactly what happened. Let me just remind us of the other text. This is Luke. He gives us this in Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting about the one who continued to mock Jesus and rail against Jesus. He called to Jesus by a powerful name. Did you notice what he called Jesus? Christ. So watch what he does. He says the right name with the wrong attitude and kind of demanding that you need to save yourself and also save me. Sometimes some of the strongest trials that people go through don't bend people's knee at the glory and the majesty of Jesus. We don't know, but he uses this word Christ, so likely he's probably a Jew. He knew the claims that were connected to Jesus. He saw the sign that was above Jesus' head. And note that he is asking to be saved with a mocking attitude. And I remind us that God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. Though he is mocked, those people who mock him, they will get exactly what they deserve. But there's one who asks for mercy. Both should be fearing God in the moment, but they're not. But one begins to fear God. As is always at the case, I say this to us this morning to remind us, Jesus must be in the center of our lives. He must be in the middle. He must be the one that we are focused on, looking at who He is. And so He says in 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen to this. Again, He didn't go to a Bible class to get this. He didn't read a book. Can somebody open a book so I can read? He's just right there hanging from the cross. God opens His eyes. He sees the glory of Christ hanging near Him. And he says three really powerful, insightful things that can only come because the Holy Spirit has opened his eyes. He recognizes that Jesus is a king over a kingdom. He knows that Jesus' kingdom is not from here. It's another worldly kingdom. So Jesus, when you come into your kingdom today, can I come? And I love this one. And I want to shout. Jesus has the power to bring unworthy sinners into his kingdom. This man, again, didn't go to a baptism class. He doesn't even get water baptized. And he gets to go to heaven. God's grace, mercy, patience, love, tenderness can go to the very last breath of hardened people. And in the last moment, 
He can rescue them. Is that not amazing? I'm glad I've been rescued earlier in my life because I get to appreciate it. But I don't know if necessarily I get to appreciate it more than that man in the moment hearing Jesus say, all right, yeah, today you get to be with me. He knew that it was enough to be forgiven and given entrance in the kingdom of heaven by trusting and believing in Jesus. For both of these men, they couldn't avoid Jesus on this day. They had to walk with Him out there. He went with them. They're there. They're hanging together. Would they bow and believe? Would they reject and remain in their sin? They couldn't avoid Him. One rejected Him, one believed. Again, what is taking place on this day? The Spirit of God is opening the eyes of a guilty, dying man to see Jesus. The only one who could rescue him from his failed and miserable life. One man has his eyes open spiritually in the midst of the very last moments of his life. And he receives grace. And so right there on the cross, what Paul would later write, we see the fulfillment of. Let me remind you and I what, happens, what happened in our lives. <clears throat> what could happen today in somebody's life. And what happened to the thief on the cross this life? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.16 and following, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil, there's a veil that's there and it is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Before we move on to the next thing this morning, I just want to remind you and I this morning, He was numbered among the transgressors, and I want to call you and I this morning to be reminded, Christ must be at the center of our lives. He must be the one in the middle, guiding, reigning, leading us, the one who died in our place. Thirdly, I want to talk about the sign that was above his head and things that are written. Let's read 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write... The king of the Jews, rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So the violence that has already been rendered upon the body of Jesus is not yet finished. The continued rejection of the religious leaders continues to happen and take place. But boy, they could not take what Pilate wrote. They have a real problem with what Pilate put above the head of Jesus. And I'll just say this this morning. Sometimes the weight of things that are written that are true about Jesus have such power. It's interesting that Pilate is not done with Jesus. We're not totally for sure why he had this written. Um, I think a strong possibility is, is he, if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about this, that Pilate was able to discern that they delivered Jesus up to them because they wanted him killed because he was jealous. It was out of envy, Pilate saw. I think Luke wrote that for us. That it was out of envy that they delivered Jesus up. And they've kept him up all during the night. 
Six times Pilate says, I, don't, I find him innocent. I, I find no guilt with them. Pilate trying to figure out ways to get Jesus off of his hands. And so probably to dig at them one, one last time, probably not, again, not godly motivated, but truth being written. He writes the sign in three different languages, the languages of the day, in Latin and in Greek. And in Aramaic, this is the king of the Jews. Aramaic was the language of religion at the time in Israel. Latin was the language of law and civil government. And Greek was the language of philosophy and culture. Note this, that as people walked by the cross that day, the three main languages all communicated a spiritual truth. Jesus is the king. It's an early prophetic word of the Great Commission. Take the name of Jesus to every culture, every tribe, every people, every language, and declare to them that Jesus is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Regardless of what Pilate truly believed at the end of this day, none of the Jewish leaders affirmed what he wrote Interesting, those who had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament were further away from the truth than Pilate was on this day. Pilate was right. Jesus is the king of the Jews, and more than that, he is the king of the world. I remind you and I of something the Old Testament shows us and history has shown us. From time to time, God uses pagan people like Nebuchadnezzar and other people to even declare His glory and who He is. Even the rocks will cry out, will they not? If nobody else is willing to do so. So for those who say it's not that important that we have a written text of Scripture, we have a book, it's not that important, they're wrong. Things that are written have tremendous influence, and it's why people are still writing books about Jesus and blogging about Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross, the only thing we ever know that Pilate ever wrote was what was above Jesus, where he called him the King of the Jews. A bit of an argument happens on this day where they're like, no, don't do that, just just change it. Can you mark out? Can you put something up there that says, well, he said this is who he is, and Pilate's like, Finally has a backbone. He's not had a backbone at all this day. Finally has a backbone and just says, No, what I have written, I have written. Again, I want to take us back to who's in charge of this day, man or God? Are we in agreement about that? God is in charge of this day. So even on this day, through a pagan, polytheistic leader named Pilate, the Father moves him to declare to everybody passing by, this is the king. This is the king. God will always have a testimony and give testimony of his son. They hung signs over people being crucified to indicate to everybody who passed by the crime of the person who was hanging there. Jesus' sign spoke of what his crime was to the religious leaders, and that was he was the king who came to establish a kingdom of truth. And that's what was above him, indicating who he is. He had not committed a crime. 
He is sinless. He is holy. He is righteous. I would like to pose one thing before we move on to the next thing as we finish this point. Now, what Pilate wrote is not Scripture, but what Pilate wrote became a part of Scripture. And I wondered this week that as that thief looked at the sign over Jesus' head during the day, did, he, did it have a profound impact upon him? Was that part of his understanding about the one in the middle is the one that could rescue him and save him? And he thought about those words that the Father moved Pilate to write and to declare to everybody in every language, popular language that day to communicate. Did he read that and did he think about that? And did it have a profound effect upon him? Scripture becomes for us. Written text becomes for us. The understanding that we have of who God is and what he desires for us in our lives. Let's look at the fourth thing this morning. And I want to talk about the cross and the fulfillment of Scripture. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, 23 says, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they, so there's four of them, said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. That's Psalm 22, verse 18. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Most of the time back in those days, when they lifted a, a cross would be laid down backwards. They would have... They would have metal hooks at the top that had ropes on them. And so they would, they would pull the, they would, the soldiers would pull the cross up. There would be a hole that had been dug into the ground so that when the cross is, is lifted up by the ropes, it would, it would go down into that. So you can imagine the pain that's there as, it, as the cross just settles down into that hole. So they have pulled Christ up. They have gotten the ropes out. He has been hanging there. There's been conversation. There's been mocking. There's been a number of different things. And it's interesting that these men have been around crucifixion so much that they are callous. Do you see that? They're just thinking about clothing. When you've got people watching Jesus, we know Jesus' mother is there, his friends are there, John is there, people are weeping, people are mocking. All three men are struggling Crucifixion, usually it was you died by suffocation because you couldn't get air anymore. So they're getting tired. It's late in the day. They're having a hard time breathing, and they're just a few feet away. When they would lift the cross up, most of the time it was about three foot off of the ground. And so we're not, we're not for sure how close the Marys were. Did you notice there's a lot of Marys back then? If you would have been born 2,000 years ago, good chance you would have become, if you're a woman, called Mary. And so they're there. We don't know how far away that they are, but enough that they can hear what's being spoken. Close enough that Jesus is able to say to John, that's your mother, and mother, that's your son. And so he's about three foot off the ground, and so there at his feet is activity, and, and it's four soldiers gambling for some of the clothing of Jesus. Note this this morning that even the act of the soldiers, they're just inches or 
feet yards away from Jesus. His words from the cross cover what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they are doing. They don't know what they're doing. Here's Christ at the end of his life, and he just has a few pieces of clothing. He has nothing else. He doesn't have a will that's going to be read on this day. He doesn't have a bank account that's going to be emptied out. He just has a few pieces of clothing. And yet he left an eternal legacy of truth and faith. The depth of his humility is incredibly seen on this day as a gambling scene takes place at his feet. Consider the immense amount of humility that is happening at the cross. Here is the God who spoke the world into existence, hanging from the cross, not calling down angels to rescue him, but hanging there, bearing our sin. He's going to die in our place as the substitute. Nobody's going to come rescue him off of that. He will die on this day. And his humility is incredible as he continues to think of others. Speaking, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. As he speaks these moments of tenderness in a moment to his earthly mother and to his friend John. The fulfillment, and you see it here in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, is just seen as he hangs on the cross. But he emptied himself, Paul wrote. By taking the form of a servant, being being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, Paul writes, on a cross. I have one last thing I want to say here before we move to the last point this morning. There is a message in over what they are gambling over. So they've, he's got this one thing and they've cut it in four pieces so each of them can have it. But when they come to his tunic, it's seamless. You know what seamless means, right? There's no seams. Listen to this. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but this is also a prophetic word. Do you remember at his trials, what did the high priest do to his garments? You remember he ripped it in two? Well, the law said that the high priest could not rip their clothes, and he did. So the high priest that year, with Jesus in front of him, rips his tunic that was seamless, rips it in two, violating the teaching of the Scripture as he is angry at Jesus. I want you to note this. They look at this thing that Jesus had been wearing, and it was seamless. It was the clothing of who? The high priest. And so there, at the foot of the cross, a fulfillment of the scripture, is he who is hanging there is who? The high priest. Man's, the high priest that was there, he ripped his garments, and so here's Christ. And so they gamble for the seamless tunic, indicating who Jesus is. There would be another piece of cloth that would be torn on this day, would it not? This one is amazing. So for a long, 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 long time, nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except once a year, and that was the high priest. And on this day as Jesus dies, this big clothing, this cloth, this curtain that was there that separated the Holy of Holies, from the top to the bottom, it is ripped open. Why? Because the Holy of Holies is outside of the city dying on a cross. 
the ultimate sacrifice. They're not going to need the curtain anymore. They're not going to need the sprinkling of blood on the Ark of the Covenant anymore because the fulfillment of all of that has just happened outside of the city. So this seamless garment is an indication of who He is and all of this is a fulfillment of the Scripture. John Stott wrote, We strongly reject, therefore, every explanation of the death of Christ which does not have at its center the principle of satisfaction through substitution. Indeed, divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. All kinds of scripture are being fulfilled on this day. So his cloak being seamless and them gambling at his feet. Let's finish here. Let's talk about the tender mercy of the Lord. Please read with me again 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his home. I think we would agree that there's tremendous spiritual implication happening on this day. God is dying as a substitute in our place. There is also a very tender moment of humanity that is happening and taking place on this day. Where when the very last acts that Jesus does is to make sure that his earthly mother is taken care of. His loving nature for people is still evident on this day. The energy of his life is waning. He knows it's about finished. He has looked up into the sky and he has cried out, Father, where are you? And then he looks down and he sees his earthly mother who had, who had spent more hours with him than anybody had on earth. She had spent a lot of time with him. It's interesting, she had been told in Luke chapter 2 verse 33 through 35 and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother behold this child is appointed for the rising the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a and for a sign that is opposed and then verse 35 of Luke 2 says this and a sword saying this to Mary Simeon says and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Can you imagine the pain in Mary's heart as she watches Jesus' life go from his body on this day? The pain that's there as she sees that. The one that has spent more time with him than anybody else. So at the very end, there are four women and one man who are at the cross. Beholding it all in, at this late time in the afternoon, everyone had abandoned Jesus. But four women and John. The words that are spoken here, 
I think, describe the emotions that they must have been feeling throughout this day as they watched Jesus hang in agony and struggle to breathe. The Old Testament said that the one who was before them that they loved was so physically marred by the hatred of men. They knew it was Jesus, but He didn't look the same because of all the beating. Mary's mind must have gone back to many vivid images that she had in events that she was there. Could she really have imagined ever how gruesomely this would end? The human emotions of this day should not be underplayed. There are lots of spiritual, again, implications, but the human emotions in the moment. This is the hardest day in history. God is dying for the lost. It's also the most hopeful day in history. God is dying for the lost. And Mary is watching it all. And yet in the moment, I just want to point out this. There is John, Mary's mother, Mary Magdalene, Clopas, Salome, and they are beholding Jesus. You know what love does? When you really love God and you love God and He's your great passion, you know what some people are willing to do? They're willing to risk it all. It was, it was dangerous for them to be near the cross and to be identified with a criminal. You didn't come on the day of your relative's crucifixion and, and hang around. It could cost you as well. And yet they didn't care. Four brave women and John beholding the sacrifice of the Son of God. Their devotion to Jesus is unmatched on this great and faithful day. I want to just say something briefly about those that were there so you can kind of get an idea of who's there. Did you notice that John doesn't even call her Mary? We know, he just said the mother of Jesus, we know who she is. I would also want to point out here that none of the epistles mention Mary's name, not a one of them. She's mentioned again in Acts chapter 1. Matthew and Mark don't even write at the crucifixion scene that Mary's even there. We get this insight from John. Again, the epistles don't write about her. She's not mentioned in the book of Revelation. And I, the point here is simply this. is that She had such a unique role and she was a blessed woman. Can you imagine being entrusted with the role of carrying the Son of God in, in your womb and raising Him and loving Him? But I just want to point this out. She, Jesus on this day doesn't say, Mother, as the Catholic Church teaches, is that she's a helper in our salvation. That's not indicated here. He doesn't even mention her, Jesus by name that's here and and give a great importance. Yes, she's important. Students, children, if your mom says, hey, I want you to clean the dishes today, don't call her woman today. Just a word of advice for you. Don't say woman. I'm not doing that, okay? Jesus is not being disrespectful here. He said this back in John 2. Remember when she came to him? They've run out of wine at the wedding. Remember what he said to her? He said, woman, why, why are you concerning this with me? He wasn't being disrespectful. What was he doing? Here's what he was doing. Things are different between you and I now. I, I, I've, I've come and my ministry is starting 
and things are going to be a little bit different with us. I've come to bear the sin of the world. Clopas is there. Um, she is the mother. Um, it's another, Clopas is another name for Alpheus. If you remember, one of the apostles is James, the son of Alpheus. This was another name. And so, so one of the apostles' mothers is also there. Um, we also know that Salome is there. We learn from Matthew uh, 27 that she's the wife of, wife of Zebedee. Anybody remember who the sons of Zebedee were? James and John. So you got two moms of two of the apostles who were at the foot of the cross with Mary. And Mary Magdalene is there who Jesus cast out demons for, from her. By the way, I just want to touch on this about Mary Magdalene. There's no place in Scripture that says she was a prostitute. So let's quit labeling her a prostitute. Could she have been? She might have been, but the Scripture doesn't say that. The Scripture tells us, you'll hear this today, that she was a demon-possessed woman who was a prostitute. It's not indicated that that was the case with her. Can you imagine what it was like for her to behold that? Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, and there she's beholding him. Why all the Mary names? comes from Miriam, Old Testament. Who was Miriam? Moses' sister. Her name means bitterness. This is a bitter day as they behold Jesus that's there. His present suffering on the cross doesn't dominate him. Rather, he still had so much mercy and grace and he extended it to his earthly mother and to John on this day. Even as he is dying, he does not forget the good of others. The God God of grace, the goodness of the grace of God is limitless in its application and implication for our lives. Mary was going to need somebody to take care of her. And Jesus asked John to do that. So what are our takeaways today? Let me give you a couple, few takeaways. Well, six are more than a couple, so, but they're brief. All right, hang on. Here's some takeaways. Number one, never forget that Jesus is our substitute. Never forget it. He died in our place. When we think of salvation, we must think about it in light of substitutionary sacrifice. He is our substitute. That's why you don't come through a person, a pastor, a priest, to talk to God. The curtain was ripped open. We come boldly to the throne of grace and we come to the great high priest, the one who was the substitute. Secondly, I remind us this morning of something really, really important. The man in the middle matters most above everybody. He must matter. He must be at the center of our lives. God placed him that day, not on the outside, but in the middle for all to behold with a sign over his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. Keep him in the center. No one else but him. Thirdly, things that are written down matter. Particularly, and most importantly, this book, the things that are written about about Jesus. All kinds of fulfillment of Scripture is happening and taking place on this day. Pilate's sign speaks the truth. Things that are written matter. We should think through them. We should behold them. We should fix our thoughts upon them. Fourthly, we should learn from Jesus 
to live for God's glory and for God's pleasure, not for possessions. At the end of his life, he has just a few pieces of clothing. We want to live for God's glory, not possessions. Jesus had so little at the end, and yet his life was the richest life that has ever been on the planet. Fifthly, this implication is important. Love others in our lives well until the very end. Love them well. Love them well. Boys and girls, Life Point kids, whatever you are, students, college students, love your parents. Respect your parents. Love them well. Grandparents, love your adult children well. Love your grandchildren well. Love your great-grandchildren well. Jesus loved well until the very end. Thinking about Mary. Love one another well. Church, we must love one another well. Love well to the end. Lastly, because there's so much fulfillment of Scripture around the cross, just Feet away from Jesus as they gamble. His seamless, it's the only seamless cloak connected to a high priest on this day. So many things being fulfilled on this day. I want to remind you and I that the cross is not about being theologically weak. It is about being theologically strong and being biblically strong. This day that Jesus dies is a fulfillment of what began in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 leading all the way to this moment. There are still things that are going to come in the future that God is going to continue to fulfill and to bring things about. And so the only way that you and I can have great, strong security in our life is to stand upon that which is true. And that is the revelation of God in Scripture. So the All of this fulfillment of Scripture connected in and around the cross tells us that we are not to be theologically weak. We are to be theologically, doctrinally, biblically strong. Don't water down anything. Don't water down anything. Wow. That was done so that we could have hope and salvation in Christ. That's God on the cross, dying in our place. Let's pray.